So last week we had uh, one of her most famous and shocking stories with Holga. And so we had, uh, you know, the, the central symbols there of her wooden leg. And that she had to have her wooden leg taken away from her by a traveling Bible salesman <laughs> for her to to realize that she had a wooden soul and that she had to be receptive for the presence of grace. And of course, the hollow Bible symbolized manly... Isn't that a great name? Manly Pointer. I mean, she and Dickens were the best with names. His shows his symbolizes his hollow soul. And, uh, and then the, her glasses, she had to become blind in order to be able to see, just like King Lear with sight and blindness there. Anyway, well, we'll go... We've done two of her most... I guess her two most famous, A Good Man's Hard to Find and, uh, and uh, Good Country People. And I get to one that doesn't get the attention uh, that, it, that it should. Uh, Greenleaf will start out there, and we may get two stories, and we may not, but we'll, uh, I'll, uh, we'll see how it goes there. This is called Greenleaf. And before we get into it, I'd like to remind you of our, uh, the three central words now. Anytime you read Flannery, mystery, manners, and the grotesque. And I got the title from it. So it's a collection of her essays called Mystery and Manners. And I read that when I spent the night in Milledgeville, Georgia. I just I will never forget that. I had uh, this great professor, Carter Martin, when I was getting my master's at UAH. And uh, he's one of the world's finest scholars of Flannery O'Connor. You'll see him in the Norton Anthology of American Literature and other books as like the first critic they, they suggest you start reading. And we spent, we went to Milledgeville, I told you, we all, we all got a Flannery O'Connor peacock feather and spent the night there and I read Mystery and Manners. And so, uh, you know, that's uh, something even I can remember now. So anyway, Mystery Manners the Grotesque. So mystery is her theme. That is the mystery of God's grace. In every one of her works, somebody receives grace. And it's often the shocking and inexplicable presence of grace. And the way we know it is whoever's linked with a peacock or the tree line. Okay? And then manners is a synecdoche or a part standing, synecdoche, a part standing for the whole, and, and that's her setting. <clears throat> and we're known for our good manners, of course. I'm wired, right, Gil? I'm good to go? Got it. Uh, yeah, I. Let's see. Yeah. Good. Thank you. He saved me. He's the guy that found my cell phone. So, okay, I'm, I'm still functioning in society because of this guy. He brought it to my house. Y'all be nice to that guy right there, okay? Teach a course for him or something, all right? Uh, and so, manners is a synecdoche for the South, and that's her setting. And you've got to set your story someplace. But don't call her a Southern writer. If you're any good at all, you're talking about the problems of the human heart, right? in conflict with itself, as Faulkner said. And then the uh, grotesque is her style. And she's, and as we said on, on the sheet, if you didn't get one of these sheets, if uh, anybody need one of my poor random... Gail, next time i got to get you zero. It maybe gets it may be time to retype that thing. But anyway, uh, uh, she said, For the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you paint large and starting figures. We have seen so many horrible things in our lifetime, that she said, I have to be really downright shocking to get your attention so that you'll read my story so that I can get my religious message across to you. Like a, uh, an overweight woman with a wooden leg uh, getting, her, getting it stolen from her by a traveling Bible salesman. I mean, who in the world would think of something like that besides Flannery? Anyway, I'd like to do Greenleaf, and this is one that, as I said, doesn't get the attention, and it should. And we start with Mrs. May, 
is in her in her bed facing the east, and the bull shivered in the moonlight, and his head raised as he as if he listened, like some patient guide come down to woo her. So Mrs. May is a widow, and she runs this farm that her husband left to her, and she wakes up, and she looks out the window, and here's a bull chewing, you know, this this wreath and looking at her. Okay, and it was a hedge wreath, and wreath of course. Uh, kind of as if caught in the tip of his horns. And so he's got this wreath of flowers on his horns and it's like a, right off the bat, what's that remind you of? Right over there around his head. It's like a crown of thorns, right? And there's a pink glow there. Anyway, um, she had been conscious in her sleep. I'm always wandering when I teach. keeps me energized. She had been conscious in her sleep of a steady rhythmic chewing as if something were eating one wall of the house. It's like God is trying to chew His way into her, okay, into her consciousness. Uh, I remember reading a C.S. Lewis story and where this person just keeps feeling kind of a, I forgot the name of it, a pounding on the roof and he just hears this voice finding, child, let me come in. So sometimes he's just trying to work to get in. And so anyway, she's got a... This is Mrs. May, and she's got a, a guy who, uh, some sharecroppers again, just like last week, and the, this is the green leaves. And green, of course, has all kinds of connotations. And uh, Mr. Greenleaf had left the gate open, and that's why his bull, his son's bull, had come onto her property there. The wreath slipped down to the base of his horns where it looked like a, a menacing prickly crown while well, she keeps working on that. And so anyway, the, Mr. Greenleaf says that the, that the bull has been here three days. And of course, three is a loaded number in the New Testament. The upper part of his face sloped gradually into the lower, which was long and narrow, shaped like a rough chalice. So we're getting a lot of religious diction early, aren't we, right? Okay, and so she's got these two worthless sons, Schofield and Wesley. And you know how we sometimes, we don't want to admit our children aren't much good, and so she's always making uh, excuses. Okay, and they just torment her. They hate being living on a farm. And Schofield says, well, Mama, I'm not going to marry until you're dead and gone. Then I'm going to marry some nice fat farm girl that can take over this place. Some nice lady like Mrs. Greenleaf. And, and, and he knows his mama hates Mrs. Greenleaf. I mean, you know where, you know where the buttons are for your family members, right? And he's just pushing. Always pushing, okay? And so, uh, and so her great fear is that this, that she's going to lose the farm and it's going to, you know, the boys will just let it fall into decay. And so anyway, it's, uh, uh, and she comes across one time, remember, comes across Mrs. Greenleaf, who was sprawled on her hands and knees off the side of the road, her head down, swaying back and forth on her hands and knees and groaning, Jesus, Jesus. Mrs. May wins. Now you'll see Mrs. Greenham, she's kind of like something with, uh, uh, you know, some charismatic or something. Uh, and, but, and it's not the type of religion that, uh, you know, that Mrs. May likes, but at least it's sincere. I mean, she heals somebody. Mrs. May went. She thought the word Jesus should be kept inside the church building. Like other words, inside the bedroom. Isn't that funny? <laughs> she, she was a good Christian woman with a large respect for religion, though she did not, of course, believe any of it was true. And so Mrs. <laughs> May, Mrs. May, you know, like some of you know, she's 
Christian, but she just doesn't believe in it sincerely. And so a lot of her superficial nonsense has got to be stripped away from her in order for her to be receptive so that Jesus can get into her heart. And Mrs. Greenleaf says, You've broken my healing. Oh, Jesus, stab me in the heart, Mrs. Greenleaf shrieked. Jesus, stab me in the heart and fell back on the dirt. And then Mrs. May comes up and says, Jesus would be ashamed of you. He would tell you to get up from there this instant and go wash your children's clothes. And so you see, she's like the grandmother. Remember how she was just focused on kind of... Uh, the, she put too much uh, worth into like manners and stuff, some of the superficial things, and had been neglecting to what really mattered, what really made a good person was what's in their heart there. And so she said, forget about all this healing stuff and go wash your kids' clothes. And Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Greenleaf, just like uh, Mrs. May, they both have two sons. And Mrs. Greenleaf, the, the sharecropper, her sons are named O.T. and E.T. I mean, I get I, I love her. The names are always great. The Greenleaf boys were two or three years younger than the May boys. And they were twins. Now, they're energetic and hardworking. Uh, Mrs. May's sons are lazy as they can be. And of course, the Mrs. May then is very jealous of Mrs. Greenleaf's boys. And that's one reason she didn't like Mrs. Greenleaf because deep down she realizes she's been a better mama than she ever was, right? So they, they married, they went off and served in the war and they married French wife. This is the 100th anniversary. Of, of armistice, isn't that right? What I've forgotten this. What was it? Eleventh hour, or the eleventh day of the eleventh month? Is that right? I've forgotten all that. That is amazing. I need to remember that when I teach uh, all quiet in the Western Front. Anyway, the Greenleaf boys were both some kind of sergeants, so they'd done fairly well in the war. And the late Mister May had bought this place when land was down. He had died, and that's all that was left to his wife. Schofield only exasperated her beyond endurance. But Wesley caused her real anxiety. Nice girls didn't like Schofield, but Wesley didn't like nice girls. So they're both, <laughs> they're both single and they're going to stay that way, aren't they? Uh, anyway, uh, and that, of course, they hate living with their mother and brother. And, and one of them talks about Paris and Rome, but he never even went to Atlanta. I mean, he's always telling me, go, I'm going to go to Paris. I'm going to go to Paris. He hadn't even made it all the way to Atlanta yet, okay? All right, so, so one of them, they're, they're just always being ugly, just hateful boys. You're, you're always yapping about when you die, but you look pretty healthy to me. I mean, what a thing to say to your mama, right? Okay, anyway, so, um, and so anyway, there are, so Mrs. Green, Mrs. May, to, to get back and get some of her frustration out, she's really working hard on Mr. Greenleaf and saying, you're going to have to go get that bull. Okay, and if you don't get that bull, your boy's bull, then, I, then I'm going to make you shoot him. Okay, I'm just warning you, if those boys don't come for him, he's going to be a dead sport. So she's, you know, if she can't fix the problem like making her sons better, then she's going to get back at Mr. Greenleaf. All right, so she goes to there on the green leaves, and they've got a milking parlor. Isn't that that's a nice euphemism? They're boys. If they've set up a mechanical thing where it's really a nice and clean place, and the milk ran in pipes, and Mr. Greenleaf says, "My boys done it, but all boys ain't alike." Hint, hint. <laughs> My boys have some initiative, you know, unlike yours. He can't say that though, right? 
And so uh, anyway, so Mrs. May goes and she goes on the Greenleaf Farm and she sees uh, a light yellow boy, a, a, a black young boy there. And, uh, and she says, where's Mr. O.T. and Mr. E.T.? She goes to try to get them to go get their bull and says, uh, can you remember a message, she asked. Isn't this great? And the little kid says, I'll remember it if I don't forget it. <laughs> now, see, that's perfect. That's just something to get right out of the South, isn't it, right? Their bull is in my place, and I want him off today. I'm going to have their daddy shoot him the first thing in the morning. She always suspected that they fought between themselves secretly. She, she wants to believe that E.T. and O.T. don't get along because her own boys are always wrestling around and beating on each other. And so she keeps talking to this little boy, and the boy says, they never quarrels. Q-U-A-R-L-S. I mean, that, that's just how we say it down in uh, South Alabama and stuff. They like one man in two skins. Hmm. I expect you just never heard them quarrel kid says, nor nobody else heard them neither. <laughs> he just kind of sticks up for them. Yeah, nobody else has either. So they are false. They are the opposite of her own sons. They're, they've worked hard and everything else. Okay? Anyway, so uh, now Mrs. Uh, May starts getting on to Mr. Greenleaf and says, they've forgotten all the nice little things I did for them now. If I recall, they wore my boy's old clothes and played with my boy's old toys. What's the important word in this sentence here? Old. And hunted with my boy's old guns. They swam in my pond and shot my birds and fished in my stream and I never forgot their birthdays. And Christmas seemed to roll around very often. Now she's trying to make them feel guilty, right? And she thinks she's just been so wonderful and so generous and she's just giving away cast-offs, right? Hadn't been anything costing her. And then she starts uh, playing the gender card here. They didn't come because I'm a woman. Quick as a snake strike. And now, boom, now see, she, he's been putting up with a lot of insults now. Then, boom, that's okay. You got two boys. They know you got two men on the place. The sun had disappeared behind the tree line. Oh, we're getting closer now, aren't we? Okay, we're getting closer to the salvation. Half the night in her sleep, she heard a sound as if some large stone were grinding a hole in the outside wall of her brain. You see Jesus? You see God trying to get His way in? Again, just like the C.S. Lewis story. He's, God's up there on the top of that roof. Child, child, let me come in. Sometimes you just grind. Uh, the sun was trying to burn through the tree line. There you go again. And she stopped to watch, safe in the knowledge that it couldn't. Then suddenly it burst through the tree line. This, this is this in last year, last last year, last week with the peacock. These are about the clearest uh, examples of you know where who gets grace. Anyway, so uh, so she finally gets Mr. Greenland. She's had enough. Said we're gonna go shoot the bull. She's gonna make this man shoot her own son's bull, his own son's bull. And it's, again, his way of getting rid of some of the frustration she has with her own boys and getting mad. She's jealous of his sons. The bull's in the pasture. You're going to shoot him there. And Mr. Greenleaf says, Ain't nobody ever asked me to shoot my boy's own bull. I mean, that's just, that's over the line. He, you know, he, she's his employer, but I mean, he's just getting kind of fed up with her. If, and she says, if those boys cared a thing about you, Mr. Greenleaf, they would have come for that bull. 
I'm surprised at them. Again, she's showing her jealousy. So they go to the pasture. She and Mrs. May and Mr. Greenleaf go to this pasture. This pasture is smaller than the last, a green arena. Well, I'm starting to think of like ancient Rome and the Christians now with the arena encircled almost entirely by woods. She got out. She got back in the car and drove to the center of the pasture. Then she got out of the car and sat down on the front bumper to wait and rest. And she could feel the sun. So she sends him off to shoot the bull and she's just waiting on the, the bumper of the car out there in this pasture shaped like an arena. She could feel the sun red hot overhead. She had been working continuously for 15 years. She, I mean, she's a hard worker. Before any kind of judgment See, there you go. And then she says, I'm afraid your wife has let... Now, she's talking to Mr. Greenleaf here. I'm afraid your wife has let religion warp her. Now, she, she had once tactfully said to Mr. Greenleaf, uh, again, she, she doesn't have a true sense of religion, does she? And he answers her, she cured a man once it that half his gut was eat out with worms. I mean, she's performed a miracle, at least in his eyes. Anyway, so she's been sitting by her side, by herself. About ten minutes have passed. And now we get to what Flannery called the heart of the story. Okay? you got to get through all this other stuff. And then you focus on the heart of the story where the dramatic climax and technical climax. And so she decided to honk. So she honks the horn three times. There's that number again, right? Then she went back and she sat down on the bumper again. Here's your key paragraph. In the few moments, something emerged from the tree line, a black, heavy shadow that tossed its head several times and then bounded forward. After a second, she saw it was the bull. He was crossing the pasture toward it a slow gallop, a gay, almost rocking gait, as if he were overjoyed to find her again. Well, who's that bull? That's, that's Jesus coming to get her, right? But we're in a Flannery O'Connor story, aren't we? So it's going to be different. we got a religious connotation with bulls. Anything in Bible? Bulls? I'm over my head. I'm not a biblical scholar. Y'all know about bulls? Okay. She looked beyond him to see if Mr. Greenleaf was coming out of the woods too. But he was not. So she's all by herself with this bull. Here he is, Mr. Greenleaf, she called and looked on the other side of the pasture to see if he could be coming out there. But he was not in sight. She looked back and saw that the bull, his head lowered, was racing toward her. It's not a good sign. <laughs> I remember, you know, I, I taught at Randolph for uh, 18 years in Huntsville, and I coached track cross-country those years too. And uh, y'all ever heard of the... Uh, the Jones Farm up there, Jones Valley, anything? Anybody know Huntsville at all? Okay. Anyway, so Jones Valley is right near Randolph over there towards Grissom. And so I'm always looking for a, a, a good place for the cross-country team to, to run. And uh, we never went on, on, on the Jones Farm. That was fenced off and everything. You've got cattle and stuff. Anyway, I got permission one day for me to take the cross-country team to go to go train on that pasture, which is a perfect place to get up there. And... Uh, so we're out there running with these young boys and girls in this. The herd of cattle got spooked and started stampeding right towards us. I mean, I, I felt like I was in a Flannery Shore store. And I, all I could remember was Rowdy Yates and Rawhide. And I'm just, you stand there, sometimes they peel apart. And I, 
I'm, I was just hoping that rawhide was factually accurate. And, I, and of course, I put myself up front because I said, I said, God, take me first. Okay. <laughs> I'm not calling these mamas. I'd rather die than call those mamas. I killed your kid. They got stampeded. All right. That'd make a good headline there in the newspaper, Huntsville Times. So, anyway, so he's coming. Well, they split. So that's why I'm still here teaching, all right? She looked beyond him to see if Mr. Greenleaf was coming out of the woods, but he's not. Here he is, Mr. Greenleaf. She called and looked back on the other side of the pasture to see if he could be coming out, but he was not in sight. She looked back and saw the bull. His head lowered was racing toward her. She remained perfectly still, not in fright, but in freezing disbelief. She Unbelief. Well, that's been her problem is unbelief, hadn't it, right? She stared at the violent black streak bounding toward her as if she had no sense of distance, as if she could not decide at once what his intention was. And the bull had buried his head in her lap. <coughs> like a wild, tormented lover before her expression changed. One of his horns sank until it pierced her heart. Here's your shocking and inexplicable presence of grace. And the other curved around her side and held her in an unbreakable grip. She continued to stare straight ahead, but the entire scene in front of her had changed. The tree line. Well, we know who got the grace, right? Was a dark wound in a world that was nothing but sky. And she had the look of a person whose sight had suddenly been restored, but who finds the light unbearable. She, she finally found God. It killed her, but she finally <laughs> found God. And this bull comes and just wraps her in a loving embrace. And Jesus sometimes comes. What? A bridegroom, right? Okay. Here he is. A groom coming. A lover. Mr. Greenleaf. Now he's running. He's, oh my God. I'm going to get fired, right? For sure. Was running toward her from the side with his gun raised. And she saw him coming, though she was not looking in his direction. She saw him approaching on the outside of some invisible circle. The tree line gaping behind him and nothing under his feet. So she's dying, of course. He shot the bull four times through the eye. She did not hear the shots, but she felt the quake in the huge body as it sank, pulling her forward on its head so that she seemed, when Mr. Greenleaf reached her, to be bent over whispering some last discovery into the animal's ear. I mean, it's just a beautiful story in a very violent way. I mean, that's just, just God finally, He's going to get you one way or the other and just finally comes and embraces her and takes her to heaven with it. It's just a, it's a wonderful, wonderful story there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not much into bullfighting. I did, did y'all hear this, uh, He's got an excuse now, okay? He's not bailing out on the That's not a file of protest, filing protest. Did y'all see on 60 Minutes a while back that for the first time, the top two matadors in the world were brothers? Y'all, y'all, anyway, that's a couple years ago. And the, and the older brother's number one and the little brother's number two. And whenever there was a, they're fighting a bull, uh, the other brother, of course, was right there in row one, right out there watching them. And anyway, this, the top matador in the world who's really skillful and working close to the bulls got too close. And he got gored. He's going down. And the bulls circle to come back to get him. 
How about that little brother? Just like that, where's the little brother? Over that wall, in between the bull and his brother. And distract them long enough for them to rescue. I love that stuff. Uh, brotherly love. Now, you can tussle all the time, but when it comes push comes to shove, I'm there for you, right? Okay. Anyway, great story. Questions there? Okay. Well, let me, let me see. I'm, I don't have long. Let me see if I can just talk a little bit about that. This is called The, the Life You Save May Be Your Own. And, uh, just give you the, the abridged version. I'll just talk about it a little bit. So, we've got this, uh, this 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 old lady and uh, and uh, and her her name's uh, Lucy Nell Crater. Isn't that a great name, Lucy Nell Crater? And she's got this daughter, Lucy Nell Crater, who's large and she's mentally challenged. I mean, she she can't even speak. And so <laughs> one day, this this one armed drifter comes down the road named Tom T. Shiftlet. I mean, you do, you know that guy's bad news. Shifty Shift. He's one armed. There's the grotesque, and it's not to gross you out; it's to get your attention. Okay, pay attention to this guy. So Tom T. Shiftlet comes, and he was a tramp and no one to be afraid of. His left coat sleeve was folded up to show there was only a half arm in it. And his gaunt figure listed, listed slightly to the side as if the breeze were pushing him. So he's kind of a skinny little guy. The breeze works him over there. Okay. And so he comes to this farm and he sees the, the lady and her daughter. Okay. And, uh, and she, she can't talk. And he had long black slick hair. Just got it all slicked back there. Parted in the middle. Okay, and then she comes up there. And this, I like this part. His figure formed a crooked cross. I think that is Flannery O'Connor in microcosm. Crooked cross. How would that work? The cross, that's easy, right? That's her religion, right? But why crooked? He's a crooked cross. That, yeah, we're not perfect. That's right. And, and the use of the grotesque. Her cross is a little different from most other people's crosses, right? Okay, anyway, she had a, and talking about the daughter, had a long pink gold hair and eyes as blue as a peacock's neck. Well, you see, this mentally challenged, overweight daughter is going to be the one. We know right off. Uh, let's see. Uh, um, so he offered, uh, so Tom T. Shiflett comes and he gets out, gets out some chewing gum and offered the old woman a piece, but she only raised her up a lip to indicate she had no teeth. Well, <laughs> chewing gum won't work with me, right? So he says, name Tom T. Shiflett. Name Tom T. Shiflett. And she, the old woman says, name Lucy Nell Crater. Daughter Lucy Nell Crater. It's like he could, ran out of names, ideas there, okay? So anyway, they go on talking for a while. And we find that Tom T. Schiff is from Tarwater, Tennessee. All right, I'm real place. Tar, of course, black. You'll know the hint that guy's evil. Okay. A fat yellow moon appeared in the branches of the fig tree as if it were going to roost there with the chickens. I mean, nobody wrote like Flannery did. So he, they just keep talking. And the woman says, are you married or are you single? Well, you see, right off the... She's trying to get rid of this daughter, Right. And the, she can't talk, and she's overweight, right? Okay. And so there's not a long line forming at the door, right? There was a long silence, as in like, doesn't want to lie, but doesn't want to tell the truth. Yeah, I'm sure he is married. 
The daughter was leaning very far down, hanging her head almost between her knees, watching him through a triangular door that she had made in her overturned hair. I mean, she's just sitting there, and she's pulled her hair apart, and she's staring at it. I mean, I can just see it. Uh, Van Gogh said, exaggerate the essential and leave the obvious vague. Let me see it. Whereas Faulkner said, if I can see the branch, I can, I can imagine the tree. Give me that one little detail. So I can just see her there staring at him between her parted hair. Okay. And of course, she's the sweetest girl in the whole world, Mama says. Says, any, any man, any man come after her, the old woman said, he'll have to stay around the place. Alright, have to live here. Mr. Shiflet's eye in the darkness was focused on a part of the automobile bumper that glittered in the distance. The reason he stopped here is she's got an old, run-down, abandoned car. He wants that car. He's not after any girls, I mean, any woman. He, he wants that car, though. Okay? So he says, okay, uh, can, can I do some work around here? She says, well, if you don't mind sleeping in that car... <laughs> That be so. He st he stays and he he works on the roof, does a little re repairing. He patched the front and back steps, built a new hog pen, restored a fence, and taught Lucy Nell, who was completely deaf. I forgot to tell you that, and had never said a word in her life to say the word bird. Another clue, right? Going to that heading towards that peacock, right? The big, rosy-faced girl followed him everywhere, saying, Bird! Bird! I remember, Doc, I can just hear Dr. Martin just saying that out in class. I'm just perfect. And clapping her hands, the old woman watched from a distance, secretly pleased. She was ravenous for a son-in-law, and he made my daughter speak. <laughs> she can talk! It's just one word, but hey, that's talking, right? Okay, so anyway, he gets the car running. That, he's working on that car most of his time, getting it running, right? Okay, so, uh, <laughs> and so Mr. Schiff comes at Mama and says, How old is she? Fifteen, sixteen. The girl was nearly thirty. <clears throat> but because of her innocence, it was impossible to guess. That's like Holga lying last time, right? Last week. Anyway, Lucy Nell was sitting on a chicken crate, stamping her feet and screaming, Bird! Bird! With a volley of blast, it emerged from the, drowned out by the car. With a volley of blast, the car emerged from the shed. He's got the car running now, so he is ready to leave, right? Moving in a fierce and stately way. He had an expression of serious modesty on his face as if he had just raised the dead. I mean, there's false grace. We're looking for true, true grace is that bird, right? False grace. Man, I got that car running. I'm really, I'm something special. Anyway, so, uh, mama start working. I'm trying to pawn off her daughter. Said one day, one that can't talk can't sass you back. <laughs> Let's look on the bright side. All right. She can't sass you. Or use foul language. She can't curse you either, right? Because she doesn't know any words. That's that's the kind for you to have right here. And she pointed to Lucy Nell sitting cross-legged. Cross-legged. In her chair, holding both feet in her hands. <laughs> can't you just see her? And she's, she's 30 and she's just sitting like a little kid would, all right? Anyway, and so, <laughs> and so now they start negotiating. Now he gets serious, okay? He knows he's got to take the girl to get the car, right? He says, I wouldn't marry no woman that I couldn't take on a trip like she was somebody. 
I mean, take her to a hotel and treat her. So they start bargaining for the honeymoon, right? Okay. And give her something to eat. <laughs> and so Miss, and so, uh, Miss, uh, Crater says, well, you'd be getting a permanent house and a deep well and the most innocent girl in the world. She is innocent. You don't need no money. Okay. See, she's cheap. I don't give you any money now. Let me tell you something. There ain't any place in the world for a poor, disabled, friendless, drifting man. Oh, that's ugly. Ooh, you, you better take what you can get, okay? You, you're disabled, drifter, friendless. The ugly word, words settled in Mr. Shiftlet's head like a group of buzzards in the top of a tree. Ooh. Lady, a man's divided into two parts, body and spirit. Now, here again, we get people saying stuff that is more true than they realize, right? Now that that is true. We got a body and a spirit. Uh, he he's lack he's got one and lacking the other, though, right? Okay. Anyway, so they start bargaining. She says, "Okay, um, you can have it painted by Saturday. Paint the car, and I'll pay for the paint." In the darkness, Mister Shiftlet's smile stretched out like a weary snake, waking up by a fire with an archetype for evil, right? Okay, says, uh, I would take, I would have to take my wife off for the weekend without no regards at all for cost, he says. <laughs> and she says, okay, counter offer. I'll give you $15 for a weekend trip. That's the best I can do. $15 honeymoon, right? That's, that's bargain basement. <laughs> and he says, it wouldn't feed her. She's big. <laughs> all right, $17.50. <laughs> that's all I got. So it isn't any use you trying to milk me. You can take a lunch. I'll, I'll pack you a sack lunch. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so they finally agree on this. Okay. Um, and they're talking about, you got to get blood tests, she says. He says, and he says, what do they know about my blood? If they was to take my heart out and cut it out, they wouldn't know a thing about me. That's probably true. May not find one. Anyway, so they, it's, it's day to go off to get married. Lucy now was dressed up in a white dress that her mother had uprooted from a trunk. And there was a Panama hat on her head with a bunch of red wooden cherries on the brim. Well, none of y'all probably had that get up for your marriage there. So they get in the car. And the car would go only 30 miles an hour, so they're just poking along this road. He had always wanted an automobile, but he'd never been able to afford one before. His first car. He drove very fast because he wanted to make mobile by nightfall. And so anyway, he looks down. She had eaten the lunch as soon as they were out of the yard. And they, that's their honeymoon lunch. And now she dinner. And she was pulling the cherries off the hat one by one and throwing them out the window. He became depressed in spite of the car. He was having a good day. He looked at his wife. Oh, God. All right. So, so we, we stopped and get some barbecue. The hot spot. That's like a story last week. The hot spot. Of course, hot spot. Dublon Tondra. Like hell. That's where he's heading, right? Fast as he can. 30 miles an hour to hell, right? Anyway, so he goes in and they get in the counter. And the boy who's serving him says she looks like an angel of God. Hitchhiker, Hitchhiker explained, I can't wait. I gotta make Tuscaloosa. The boy bent over again and very carefully touched his finger to the strand of the golden hair. And Mr. Shiftless left. He takes this, um, 
mentally challenged, overweight lady with no money, and he leaves her at the barbecue counter. She doesn't know her name. She doesn't know where she lives. She doesn't know a phone number. She is t lost. Yet, she's the saved one, right? And he's the saved one. He's got the car and he drives off, but he is totally lost, right? He kept his eye out. For, so he's driving along. A storm's coming. He kept his eye out for a hitchhiker. Occasionally, he saw a sign that warned, Drive carefully. The life you save may be your own. Okay, you better watch, you better work on your, on your, uh, taking care of your life. It's like that sign there on 65, right? Go to church, the devil will get you. That's, what's it about Thorsby or someplace, isn't it? And so, Shift picks up a hitchhiker and he tells the guy, I got the best old mother in the world, so I reckon you only got the second best. The boy gave him a quick, dark glance. It's nothing so sweet, Mr. Shiftless said, as a boy's mother. She give him love when no other would. I wonder if he has a terrible mother. Finally, keeps talking about his mother, and the boy just has it. The boy turned anger in his seat. You go to the devil, which is where he's going. My old woman's a flea bag, and yours is a stinking polecat. And he flung the door open. There's a little bit of justice, right? Shift. Oh my God! And jumped out with his suitcase in the ditch. Mr. Schiff was so shocked that he left the door open. A cloud, the exact color of the boy's hat and shaped like a turnip. There's that minor symbol of evil at the end of the story again, right? Like we had last week. <clears throat> Uproot that turnip, right? remember? <clears throat> had descended over the sun and the other worst looking crouched behind the car. Mr. Schiff had felt that the rottenness of the world was about to engulf him. The turnip thunderstorm continued slowly to descend. It, the rain crashed over the rear of Mr. Shiftless' car. Very quickly, he stepped on the gas, and with his stump sticking out the window, he raced the galloping shower into Mobile. <laughs> Good story, too, there. All right, so the, so the lost is saved, and the saved is lost there, okay? Well, anyway, got to let y'all go to church. There. Thanks for coming. Well, we got two in, didn't we? All right. Last, is next week our last one? Man, that was a quick semester. <laughs> All right, doing uh, Parker's Back. You ain't seen nothing yet. Y'all like tattoos? <laughs> Me either. <laughs> you, know, you know, used to be tattoos just for the sailors and stuff. Now it's women and everything. It's just the world's changed. Had it. We're going to talk tattoos and the river. Parker's Back and the river. God, y'all, thanks for coming. Y'all have, have a great day. Thank you. Uh, You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.